Welcome back. Welcome back. You already know what it is. It is October 18th for me. It might be the 19th for you. It might be something else for you. It is UFC 280 Fight Week. This is the UFC 280 episode. I'm so excited. I don't even know where I'm going to start. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. It's going to be a whole lot of me being at a loss for words today. I'll warn you about that right now. I just did some pull-ups. I could not properly explain how excited I am for this card. I'm going to be talking about it all week. To anybody that listens, not even with a microphone. I'm just going to be walking down the street. I'm going to see somebody. I'm going to be walking to a class. I'm going to be like, hey, it's UFC 280 fight week. And then just leave it at that. And if you're listening to it, if you're listening to me talk right now, you, you better be as excited as I am. Because come on. It's, it, oh man. I'm so, so, so excited. I took notes for five hours yesterday. I hit just this crazy flow state, taking notes on fights, watching all the videos I could on. I mean, I watched a bunch of these people's fights. I watched Dan Hardy's War Room. If you haven't seen those on YouTube and you like the super granular details on a lot of these fights from a, a technical standpoint, you got to watch those. He He makes the best technical breakdown videos of anybody out there. But I just spent five hours watching all these videos, watching fights, taking obsessive notes. And now I'm going to just expel all this information and, you know, into your ears, hopefully. I'm going to take my brain thoughts and just shove it into your ears. So you're welcome. Let's get the logistics out of the way first. If you're listening right now, I'd really appreciate it if you hit the follow, subscribe button, whatever it is on your respective platform. I'd appreciate that so much. Please download the episode. That helps a lot from my understanding. The download helps a lot. And then just thank you for listening. Once again, I'll never stop thanking you for listening. I really appreciate it. We are coming off of a UFC event. Alexa Grasso, congratulations to Alexa Grasso. Big win or Viviani Araujo. Big win for her. Rafael Sunsau with a big win over Victor Henry. Um, let me. Th- uh, Jonathan Martinez kicking the legs out from underneath Cub Swanson. That was really, really impressive. There were more. I don't want to necessarily just sweep them under the rug. It was a good card last weekend. Big congratulations to all the winners. At some point, we'll probably get to talking about them because a lot of the people that won are going to are inserting themselves into conversations about rankings and the title and all that fun stuff so we'll get to all them at some point but not today because it's UFC 280 fight week and that is greater than any one thing I could think of I don't even know what that means it's just that good the crazy thing about this card is that the top six fights are so good it is hard to even it's hard to find a card that compares because recent pay-per-views there's been a fight i i don't know there's been something within the pay-per-view we haven't had a card like this in a minute since i mean ufc 276 was stacked absolutely stacked that was international fight week but even that card uh you know main card was robbie had robbie lawler versus brian barbarina great fight great fight but not really not necessarily a ton of stakes there neither guy was ranked you know Nothing against either of those guys. I love watching both those guys fight. Robbie Lawler, former champ. Brian Barberina, absolute beast on a tear right now. But when you're talking about stakes, title implications, that just wasn't an aspect of that fight. And then even, you know, Sean O'Malley versus Pedro Munoz. That was on UFC 276. Huge fight because O'Malley was a part of it. It was his first big ranked test. Obviously, it didn't work out very well because of the no contest, the eye poke, all that fun stuff. At the time... It's not like everybody was like, oh, this is a big, like, it's not like that was a fight that people were talking about having title implications, which is fine. And that card was incredible. The prelims of 276 especially were insane. Ranked fighters almost all the way down the prelim card, down to the early prelims, there were ranked fighters, which is rare. But now you have these top six fights. I'll just run through them, I guess, real quick. You know what they are, but I'm still going to go through them. Main event. Charles Dubronx Oliveira versus Islam Makachev for the quote-unquote vacant lightweight championship. It is vacant because of the whole weight cut issue with Charles last time. Doesn't matter. Charles is the champ. We all know it. 
That's for the lightweight championship. Co-main event, Aljamain Sterling, the reigning UFC Bantamweight champion, taking on former two-time Bantamweight champion TJ Dillashaw in Aljo's second title defense after defeating Piotr Jan. That's a huge, that's, that's a big legacy fight for both guys. Feature bout on the main card, Piotr Jan, the formerly mentioned former Bantamweight champion, taking on Sean O'Malley in what is an enormous fight in the Bantamweight division. Dana basically said the other day that this is a number one contender's fight at Bantamweight. Next up, Benil Dariush, ranked number six at lightweight, takes on Mateusz Gamrot, ranked number nine at lightweight. Big, big fight in the lightweight division. Rounding out the main card, Caitlin Chukagian versus Manon Furo in a big, big fight at women's flyweight. Caitlin Chukagian doesn't lose to many people, not named Valentina Shevchenko. Manon Furo is on a tear. And we just had this Alexa Grasso win last weekend. Chukagian versus Furo plays a big role in what's going to happen with the women's flyweight division and what happens with Alexa Grasso moving forward. And then the prelim main event, the fact that this is the fact that this fight is a prelim is insane. Bilal Muhammad taking on Sean Brady at welterweight. Bilal ranked 5th in the welterweight division. Brady ranked ninth. Brady undefeated, never lost. Bilal on a tear, coming off a big win over, um, a couple big wins over Vicente Luque and Steven Thompson. Two big wins. He's really putting himself into the welterweight title picture. Insane that, I don't have to talk about this yet. I don't have to talk about this yet. I'll get to it. You see how I just, I just want to jump into it? There's so much to talk about. Those are the six fights, all with huge stakes, all with title implications. If they're not already title fights, we have two title fights, then four fights with huge title implications. A brief breakdown of the prelims, which are also very good. A lot of prospects, a lot of big fights. Kai, Kai, Kao, Baralio, Baralio, Baralio. Ah, it's like the Pedro Carvalho, Carvalho, Baralio. I want to say it's Baralio. Kao, Baralio. Oh man, I have to have butchered that. I'm sorry. Very, very impressive middleweight prospect. Takes on Mahmoud Moradov. Man, Bruce Buffer has got his work cut out for him this weekend. Good lord, this card is brutal. Mahmoud Muradov, that's a good fight at middleweight. That's two guys that are probably in like the 25-ish arena, like number 25 ranked at middleweight. And uh, Baralio's been really, really impressive recently. He's on a four or five win streak. Volkan Ozdemir versus Nikita Krylov. That's a big fight at light heavyweight. Two ranked fighters. Krylov coming off a knockout of Alexander Gustafsson. Ozdemir coming off of a win over Paul Craig. Zubaira Tukugov. Tukugov takes on Lucas Almeida at 145. Abubakar Madov takes on Gadzi Omar Gadziev at welterweight. Armin Petrosian takes on AJ Dobson at middleweight. Mohamed Mokhayev takes on Malcolm Gordon. This is a big fight at flyweight. Mohamed Mokhayev top one or two prospects in all of MMA right now. It's him and Bo Nickel. Those are the top two. It's really 1A, 1B. Whoever you want to put first and second doesn't really matter. Equally as impressive, uh, Makayev undefeated, 7-0. and uh, Two fights in the UFC so far, two wins, coming off of a l- extensive amateur career where he was also undefeated. Makayev is going to be a problem in the, in the flyweight title picture in pretty short order. I'd say by the end of 2024, he's probably either fighting for a belt or he's in a number one contender's fight. Did I say, no, by the end of 2023, he's probably fighting in a number one contender's fight or fighting for the belt. He is very, very good. And he's like 20, 21, something like that. He's younger than I am. 22. Six months younger than I am. Sheesh. Lena Landsberg versus Carol Rosa. The only other women's fight on this card outside of Chukagian Fioro. It's a good fight. They're both ranked bantamweights. Somewhat big fight. I mean, it's outside of Muhammad Brady and Ozdemir Krylov, that's the biggest fight on this prelim card because it's a ranked matchup. So that's probably going to be the opener. That's going to be the, the curtain jerker to the whole card. So that's going to be... You're starting off with stakes right off the jump. And I'm going to be saying stakes a lot. And I apologize in advance, but you're not going to stop me. So we're going to move forwards. And I'm going to just... The reins are coming off for this one. I I'm, I I can't promise I know what's going to happen in this next... I don't know. I don't even know how long it's going to take. It might be two hours. I'm just going to be talking. And you can't stop me. But you can stop listening. And 
uh, you know, that'd make me sad, but it's okay. I already forgive you because I have a feeling this is going to get weird, and now I'm rambling. Starting us off today, some podcasts like to start at the top. I'm going to start at the bottom, and we're going to end with the main event as it should be, as God intended it. And we're going to start off with Bilal Muhammad, her fifth-ranked welterweight in the UFC versus Sean Brady, ranked number nine. Muhammad coming in with a 21-3 record, one no contest, at about a plus 115 underdog. And then you have Sean Brady, no nickname for Sean Brady, 15-0, coming into this fight as a minus 140 favorite. This fight, in my opinion, is about as true a pick as you can have because they've... Their game plans, they're different fighters, but their game plans parallel each other in a lot of ways. Here's the thing. Both of these guys, the cornerstone of their fight style is relatively similar. The cornerstone of their game is the takedown, and they're going to pressure you, pressure you, pressure you. With their striking, they're going to back you up and then move and then move towards the takedown. Now, Bilal has really good takedowns from space. Brady is more than happy to just use the cage. Brady will just back you up into the cage until you have nowhere to go, lean against you, get real heavy, and then eventually take you down right there against the cage, kind of similar to how uh, Khabib used to fight. But obviously there's, there's differences. But Brady is more than happy to use the cage, and more than, more than often you see him using the cage for his takedowns and his grappling. Bilal is, Bilal is more than happy to use the cage as well, but Bilal has really, really good takedowns from space which is somewhat rare uh, in terms of MMA. Not rare, but it is a little bit different than kind of the general MMA wrestling takedown. When they get you to the ground is when there's a little bit of a difference. Bilal is a little bit more of a bruiser. He's going to put a lot of pressure on you, ground and pound you, make your life really miserable until you make a mistake. Sean Brady, on the other hand, is a really, really dangerous offensive grappler. He is really good at submissions when he gets on top of you. He's going to get... Brady's jiu-jitsu is really, really good. Now, what makes this fight interesting is, as I said, cornerstone of both of their games, obviously, is the takedown. And they're both very... They're both more than passable on their feet, too. They're both very skilled on their feet as well. But generally, they want to get a takedown. And both of their takedown defense numbers are incredible. Bilal Muhammad's takedown defense, 91%. And we saw this against Damian Maya. Damian Maya wanted to get Bilal to the ground. Could not do it. And in that fight, Bilal was more than happy to sit there and kickbox with him, and he won the fight. And then Sean Brady's takedown defense number, 87%. Neither one of these guys are letting up many takedowns. A lot of times when you get two guys that are both this skilled in grappling, it just kind of cancels out and it becomes a kickboxing fight. But in this fight, for this fight, Bilal's been training with the, the Habib and... Makachev camp with Javier Mendez, all those guys. He's going to have Habib in his corner. So you would expect that Bilal's coming into this fight planning on wrestling. When you've got a guy like Habib in your corner, you've been training with their camp this whole this whole fight camp, you're, you'd think he's probably planning on wrestling. And that, I think, is going to get really interesting. Because if they decide to wrestle, I am so, so interested in seeing who wins those exchanges. Because I do not know. We don't know who the better grappler is in this situation. It might be Bilal, it might be Sean Brady. But there's absolutely no way of knowing that right now. That's why I think this is as true a pick'em fight as you can you can find. Because it, it kind of is going to come down to who's more stubborn, who imposes their will. And that's not a big brain take. But I think it would seem both guys are going to intend on grappling. And I just don't know who's going to win those, who's going to win those exchanges. I, I think I could, I could see it where they it almost goes 50-50 again. Like, if either one of these guys ends up on top of the other, pressure and the positioning for both of them is so good, it's going to be hard for the other guy to get out because both of them are so good in top position. Brady is also skilled from his back. Brady's jiu-jitsu is very, very legit. So, yeah. Like, like I said, I'm going to be at a loss for words a lot in this. I don't, like, when you have a, a, a fight like this where there are so many questions... And it's it it seems so simple, but then it's so complicated because all like I don't know, man. I don't know. Oh, that's gonna be such a good fight. Who knows what's gonna happen? You can have a pick, and I th- I should make a pick for all these fights probably. But this is so tough. It's like, oh, I don't know, man. 
I'm going to make a pick. And my pick is going to be Sean Brady. But I don't feel good about it. I don't feel good about it. I'm only picking that because I saw him outgrapple Michael Chiesa, who is also a really, really good grappler. It's the only reason I saw him outgrapple Chiesa. I don't feel good about this pick, but I, it, I wouldn't feel good about it if I picked Bilal either. I don't feel good about it either way because I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm going to put it on the record. I'm picking Sean Brady. Oh, this is going to be hard for all these fights. All right, first fight down. This is going to be hard, man. I'm so excited. I hope this, I hope, uh, no. Ah, ah, okay, we got to move on. I could just sit here and think and talk and freak out, but I'm not going to do that. Moving on, first fight of the main card, Caitlin Chukagian, the number one ranked flyweight in the world, takes on Manon Firo, number seven ranked flyweight in the world. Chukagian comes into this fight 18-4. and four. She's on a four-fight winning streak, and she is the plus 160 underdog coming into this fight. Manon Firo is 9-1. and one. She has not lost since her first pro fight. She's on a nine-fight winning streak, and she's the minus-190 favorite coming into this fight. And this fight is easily getting the least attention of any on this main card, which is fair, but this is also a really good fight. And I say it's fair because all due respect to Caitlin Chukagian, who is a beast. You know, they say there are three certainties in life. Some people say there's two certainties in life, but the smart people say there's three, and those certainties are death taxes and Caitlin Chukagian by decision because that's simply what happens she is the truest number one contender in the UFC in my opinion at 125 she pretty much beats everybody not named Valentina Shevchenko and there's other losses on her record her most recent loss was to Jessica Andrade former strawweight champion nothing to turn your nose up at but it feels like the UFC just keeps feeding her contenders and she just beats them Knocks them all off. Chukagian also the tallest flyweight on the roster. I believe she's uh, listed as five foot nine, five feet nine inches tall. Firo seems pretty tall too. I should see what she's listed at five seven. But like I said, Chukagian is like the ultimate litmus test for this division before you get to Valentina Shevchenko, and she doesn't she doesn't get past much. It is actually kind of a big issue for the UFC because a lot of times they have to take people that lost to Chukagian and put him into a title fight anyways because it's like well they don't really want to put Chukagian back into a title fight because Valentina beat her horribly but nobody can get by Chukagian either and now Manon Fiero is the next in line for this test and she hasn't lost since her pro debut in 2018 like I said before and I I think this is going to be a pretty good fight because both are super super skilled strikers I mean Chukagian is deceivingly big because Manon Fiero looks huge but apparently she's two inches shorter and is three inches less of reach than Jukagian. Now, Furo is a super high-pressure striker. She walks forward. She throws her punches with a vengeance. Like, all of her punches look like they're thrown. There's something, there's, there's just a little something behind them that just is, she's throwing them with a vengeance. And she throws a lot of kicks. And when she's in southpaw, she throws her front right leg kicks a lot. Teeps, high kicks. She just she throws that front right leg all the time in southpaw. It's almost like a, like a jab, like a little... She uses that front right leg as a feeler to get her range a little bit. And then she comes back with really, really quick, straight punches. And Jukagian is a, just a really, really good boxer. She doesn't do anything crazy, but she everything she does is crisp and clean, and she has great head movement, and she just lands a lot of strikes. And her reach is so much longer than a lot of these other women at 125 that she gets to them first. One of the more impressive things, I think, about Chukagian's game, you would think that, obviously, the way to beat her is just take her down. But her game on the ground has gotten a lot better. She's very good at forcing scrambles. When she gets taken down, a lot. What really what she does is she, when she gets taken down, she's throwing submissions up. She's kicking her legs up. She's trying to throw up arm bars and triangles and stuff. And is forcing a scramble, and then she's able to she's able to use that, get space, and get back into her boxing range, get up, and she's also really good in the clinch, because obviously fighters are trying to clinch with her because you would think that's the way to beat her, but she's really good at throwing knees, elbows, again to get a little bit of space and get back to her boxing range. This doesn't sound like anything. This sounds like such a dumb take on my part, probably because I'm just explaining how to fight well. 
But when you're watching it, it's impressive because it's Shukagin being really disciplined, knowing where she wants the fight to be. She is just very, very good at keeping the fight where she can win it. You can see from her previous fights, she's faced really good grapplers. Amanda Hebus, Jennifer Maya, Viviane Araujo, Jennifer Maya again. Really, really skilled grapplers, but they can't put Shukagian in a disadvantageous position for very long. I'm just gonna. I, I I'm interested to see if Furo can beat Chukagian in in the striking exchanges. Of course, neither of these women really tend to take it to the ground. So I just think it's going to be a great striking matchup, and it's a hard fight to to break down because I think they're somewhat similar, and I think it's I think it's going to be a really good fight though, and I I could actually see this being a total war, knockdown, drag out battle of two really good strikers, and we're gonna move on once again. Two, Benil Dariush, the sixth-ranked lightweight in the UFC, taking on Mateusz Gamrat, the ninth-ranked lightweight in the UFC. Dariush comes into this fight 21-4-1. On a seven-fight win streak, he's the plus-165 underdog. Mateusz Gamrat, 21-1, four-fight win streak, the minus-195 favorite. Now, Benil Dariush was supposed to fight Islam Makachev last February. Uh, I believe Dariush injured his ankle. He had to pull out of that fight, and then now Islam, kind of by default, ended up in the title fight. But Benil has, has just as much of a right, in my opinion, to be in, to be in this title fight as Islam does. Benil's looked really, really good over his last seven fights. His last loss was a quick knockout to Alexander Hernandez. That was in 2018. Uh, and since then, I mean, he's been pretty much lights out. Submitted Drew Dober. Had that crazy fight with Dracar Close where he was in trouble and then he knocked him dead. And then he just had that dismantling of Tony Ferguson we saw uh, in May of 2021. And now he comes up against Mateusz Gamrot, former KSW champ champ at lightweight and featherweight. Gamrot, only been in the UFC since uh, late 2020. This is another matchup of incredibly skilled grapplers, which is just, the grappling on this card is just chef's kiss. So good, top to bottom. This card is a grappler's dream to watch. They're Again, kind of like the Bilal versus uh, Brady fight, their bases are somewhat different. Gamrot's base is wrestling. He was a, I mean, really, really, really good wrestler. I believe he, he was on Poland's national team at one point. And then Dariush's base is Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and his jiu-jitsu is really good. Dariush has also been in the UFC a long time, compared to Gamrot, who I said before, only been in the UFC since 2020. Dariush has been in the UFC since 2014? Yeah, made his UFC debut in January of 2014. Gamrot made his debut over six years later. It's less than a two-year age difference between them. Dariush is 33, Gamrot's 31. And what makes this fight so interesting, if you watched Mateusz Gamrot's fight with Armand Sarukian, uh, that was a main event just a few months ago, the exchanges that Gamrot's willing to get into, and then you can watch Dariush as well. Dariush is more than happy to scramble, and Gamrot, honestly, when Gamrot's wrestling in, in MMA, he uses a lot of kind of just basic freestyle wrestling technique, like he's hitting like low singles in the octagon, which is not a normal shot you see in the octagon, or in the cage, I mean. And then you see in his fight with Sarukian, he's hitting switches, and he's hitting Granby rolls, just causing these crazy scrambles. And Dariush is more than happy to... He, he's just going to scramble with you, but from a BJJ perspective, looking to catch a neck, looking to transition into something, into some sort of submission, I think we could get a bunch of those crazy grappling exchanges like we saw with Gamrot versus Sarukian, and like we've seen in a lot of Dariush's previous fights, because they're also both super offensive with submission attempts. They just go about them in such different ways. It's just going to be, it's another, oh man, I sound like a broken record, and you're probably listening to this and being like, dude, you're not even saying anything. You're not giving us anything, and I'm, because all I'm saying is, I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't. Mateusz Gamrot is really good. He's really, really good, and he beat Armand Sarukian. I know the fight was close, but I thought Gamrat won. He's really, really good. He just hasn't been around as long. Dariush has just consistently been doing this since 2014. 
But you look at Benil's career, he hasn't he doesn't really have many bad losses. The only questionable one is maybe Ramsey Nijum back in twenty fourteen. But Ramsey had his day. Ramsey was in the ultimate the ultimate fighter finale versus Tony Ferguson. And I just don't know how this fight's gonna go. And this is a ah I'm so excited. It's just another true pick'em, which is why this card's so good. There's so many of these fights that it's just like a true like ah oh man, what's gonna happen? And if you like to watch grappling, or even if you just want to like to watch grappling, you gotta watch these fights. You gotta watch uh, Bilal versus Brady. Although I'm not gonna lie, Bilal Brady could be boring because both guys are such good. If one guy's winning the takedown battle, it could look somewhat boring because he might just hold position rather than really try anything else. But this fight, Benil versus Gamrat, I think they're gonna let it fly. I think they're gonna get in crazy grappling exchanges, and I think it's gonna be awesome. Moving on, once again, one of the biggest fights of the night, Piotr Jan, former Bantamweight champion, currently ranked number one, and Sean O'Malley, ranked 12th in the Bantamweight division, but O'Malley, the biggest mainstream star in the division, I think, easily. Jan is 16-3, and three. he's obviously coming off that series with Aljo, where he lost both fights, one by disqualification, and then Aljo beat him by split decision in the rematch. Jan is the minus 310 favorite, about 3-1 to one favorite coming into this fight. O'Malley, 15-1, won no contest. He's the plus 255 underdog. I think this line is fair It's a, I, for the competition that O'Malley's faced and how he's done against the competition. I think 3-1 to one favorite for Jan is a pretty good number, but I also think there's value at plus 255 for O'Malley. Now, the lead-up to this fight's been really interesting to me because you would think there's two easy takes. There's well, there's two there's two stupid takes I think and they're equally dumb. The two stupid takes are one man O'Malley's so O'Malley's taller and he has that power. He's gonna knock Jan out. He's too short. Stupid take. Other stupid take. O'Malley sucks. He's only fought cans. Jan's gonna beat him up, knock him out in the first round. Also a stupid take I think. The funny thing about Sean O'Malley and I'm a victim of this too when. You have a guy that is has such a mainstream following by people who aren't necessarily super big MMA fans. It is easy to just dislike him. Not even dislike him. To try to like write him off a little bit because you have all of the idiot casual like Nelk Boy fan morons that are like, O'Malley's the goat, he's gonna you know, he's the best band in the world, blah blah blah, he's so good, and they don't even know what's going on. He like that makes it easy to diminish what he's done because in reality, he hasn't really fought anybody. I mean, his two best fight the, the the two best guys he's fought were Pedro Munoz and Cheeto Vera. Munoz obviously that fight was not a lot happened in the first round, and then you know Munoz got poked in the eye, and the fight had to be stopped. And then Cheeto Vera beat him up, and he lost. So it is easy to diminish him because of that, or to you know talk down on him. It's easy to do, but I think that's just as dumb as the people who say he's the man because he's done I mean O'Malley has been legitimately really impressive in his fights and he obviously is really skilled he's obviously a super skilled fighter let's just start let's just break down this stupid fight I get too caught up in all the weird stuff I just gotta let it fly on appearance obviously a major factor in this fight is the height and reach of O'Malley he's four inches taller than Jan and he has five inches in reach advantage obviously this makes a difference it is it is uh, a physical x factor that O'Malley has now, the thing about Jan, and we saw it in the Sandhagen fight, we've actually seen it in a lot of his fights because Jan is just kind of a smaller dude. He's really, really good at making up for height and reach advantages. He's really, really good at it. And he's really, really hard to hit with straight punches, which are kind of what O'Malley's known for. I mean, O'Malley's straight right's his biggest weapon, and Jan's really hard to hit with straight punches. Of course, while obviously we've seen Jan fighting a taller guy like Sandhagen, who is, I think, as tall or taller than O'Malley, O'Malley and Jan, or O'Malley and Sandhagen, rather, do not have the same striking style. O'Malley throws straight punches. He's a really good boxer. Great footwork. Oh, Sandhagen has great footwork, too. They just have a different style of fighting. Here's what I mean. O'Malley's striking is a lot more based on utilizing his reach advantage. Because he has a reach, advan- uh, a reach advantage over a majority of people in the bantamweight division. And his striking style is very based upon utilizing that reach advantage. And O'Malley is incredible at maintaining his range and understanding his opponent's range. It looks, you watch him strike, it looks like it's second nature to him. It's really, really, really impressive. 
and that's why this is a big factor in this fight. And it's interesting because because Jan is so good at nullifying. And one of the ways Jan does that is that he is an expert at walking his opponents down and trapping them against the cage just using his footwork. Walking guys into the cage, getting them trapped before they even realize it. And then you have O'Malley, who also has incredible footwork. And he's he's okay moving backwards a little bit, moving side to side. But then when he wants to attack, he's... He's best on attack when he's moving forward and he's moving into you. And Jan's not a guy that lets a lot of people walk towards him. Jan doesn't really get walked down. And that's where I think this fight is really going to be fought, is in the footwork. Because both guys have incredible footwork. Like I said, Jan's footwork is more based on a a cat and mouse game. Jan's three steps ahead of you, walking you. He's going to cut you off, walk you back, cut you off, walk you back. All of a sudden, you're backs against the cage and you have nowhere to go and Jan's swarming you and then O'Malley's so good at moving side to side side to side he'll walk towards you he'll walk you down a little bit and then he has really great feints that are going to tend to bait his opponent into moving forwards and almost he kind of fakes them out with his range they almost think they're out of range and then when they when they bite they come in to throw shots that's when O'Malley throws his straight punches or his uppercut and they're right on the, they're always right on the end of his punches right at the peak power point of his punches it's really impressive and it's all set up by footwork and i really think that's how this fight is going to be fought whoever wins the footwork game i think is going to win the fight and then a couple other a couple other things about this fight that i think are valuable that i think deserve to be talked about are one the leg kicks from Piotr Jan because we've seen O'Malley have issues getting leg kicked before especially in the Cheeto Vera fight. O'Malley also just doesn't really check leg kicks. Pedro Munoz landed something like 26 leg kicks in the, what, seven minutes they fought, which is like a UFC record or something. O'Malley doesn't really check leg kicks, and Jan is so good at finding an opponent's weakness and making adjustments on the fly to attack it. If he sees O'Malley isn't checking leg kicks, and if they're doing any level of damage... Jan is going to go full force just kicking his legs, kicking his legs, kicking his legs every time he can. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Maybe it, doesn't, maybe it doesn't become a factor, but I think it very well could become a factor. And then the grappling. Will either one of these guys decide they want to grapple at all? My guess would be neither of them are planning on grappling coming into the fight. Of course, we've seen Jan has a really interesting takedown game, but it's really effective. He uses a lot of foot sweeps and kind of some off-balance moves that knock his opponent down kind of onto their hands, and then he's really good at taking their back. And O'Malley, although we haven't really seen him grapple much, he supposedly has a really good jiu-jitsu game. I, I feel like we see a lot of footage of him grappling, like in camp. I know he, I know he has good jiu-jitsu, he just doesn't really use it. And I'm not sure Piotr Jan wants to be in O'Malley's guard because O'Malley's so long, and let's say... Piotr Jan does take him down. He does want to grapple him a little bit, maybe to just tire him out or something. To me, it seems like O'Malley's guard could be a really dangerous place if his jujitsu is as good as I would think it is, just off a gut feeling, because I feel like I've seen him grappling a lot. And I know he grappled at a, like, the, the Quintet Ultra thing they did in, uh, a few years ago. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, I, I feel like O'Malley's grappling, his jujitsu, and especially off his back, could be really good. And it seems like Jan might want to stay out of that. It just seems like that could be a really dangerous spot. For- so yeah, it's it's a great fight, and it's an interesting fight. I could see I I could see Jan steamrolling him. I could see that happening. I could also see O'Malley picking off two rounds early, picking off the first two rounds of the fight. It's a three round fight, which it helps O'Malley. Everybody has said that because in a five round fight, Jan is really hard to beat. But it's a three round fight. I could see O'Malley winning the first two rounds, or you know, winning the first round, second round being real close. And then all of a sudden, Jan's in a position where he might need a he might need a finish. And Jan is somebody who gets frustrated in fights. I don't want to say easily, but we've seen him get frustrated in fights and kind of fight a little bit emotionally. And I mean, I could I could see Jan walking into a big straight right hand of O'Malley. He doesn't get hit by straight punches very often, but O'Malley has a really really good straight right, and he and he has a really good uppercut too. I don't think it's impossible that that Jan runs into a big shot by O'Malley and is hurt. I'd be really, really impressed if O'Malley finishes Jan. That's tough for me to see. That that's that'd be pretty insane, but not impossible. And I could see O'Malley picking off two rounds, maybe narrowly, but I could see O'Malley winning a split decision, winning a decision over Jan. 
if he has a really good first two rounds. It's hard for me to see Jan not winning a single round, but I can see O'Malley winning two out of three. It's going to be a really interesting fight. And again, I think it comes down to the footwork. Whoever wins the footwork is going to win the fight, in my opinion. This whole fight, I'm just going to be watching their feet. I'm going to miss stuff, probably. Talking about feet too much. Good Lord. Moving on. Once again, to our first title fight of the evening. We have Aljamain Sterling, the current sitting reigning Bantamweight champion, taking on TJ Dillashaw. Ranked number two at Bantamweight right now, right behind Piotr Jan. Aljo, if he wins this fight, would break the UFC Bantamweight win streak record with eight. He'd have the longest win streak in Bantamweight history if he wins this fight. Aljamain Sterling is 21-3 and on a seven-fight win streak currently. He comes into this fight as a minus-170 favorite, the current Bantamweight champion. Obviously, coming off that big win over Piotr Jan, people really counted him out, and he got the job done in the rematch. He faces TJ Dillashaw, 17-4 and record. The former two-time Bantamweight champion comes in at the plus 145 underdog. Of course, he's coming off that win over Corey Sandhagen, very close fight. He pretty much tore everything, blew his whole knee out in that fight early, and still found a way to, found a way to get the win, which is very impressive. Obviously, that was his first fight in about two years. He had the two-year suspension for the failed drug test. He tested positive for EPO. He tested positive after his loss to Henry Cejudo in his attempt to win the belt at 125. Yeah, that's really the storyline coming into this fight. You have Dillashaw. It's been a weird fight week. You have Dillashaw, who is maybe the biggest heel figure in MMA right now. It is somewhat hard to find somebody in MMA who is a super big fan of TJ Dillashaw at this point because everybody just dislikes the cheating aspect of it so much. And it is really hard to know whether he's been cheating his entire career. You have guys from his former camp saying he's been doing this kind of thing his whole career. He says that they had that they that after he tested positive against Cejudo, they went back and tested all of his old samples and that they all came back clear. But I've never heard that corroborated by the UFC or anybody, so or USADA or so I don't I don't know. You know, TJ doesn't seem to be overly remorseful. He's just kinda like, Who cares? I'm still the best. I never lost this belt. It's like, well, okay. And then, for some reason, Aljo decided to try to turn as many people into Dillashaw fans as he possibly could by... I don't want to talk about this. I'm not going to talk about it. I refuse. <laughs> if you want to know what I'm talking about, go to Aljamain Sterling's Twitter. You might have to scroll. Not You shouldn't have to scroll very much. For whatever reason, Andrew Tate is in... Abu Dhabi, and he's making the rounds, ha- like taking pictures, hanging out with all a lot of the fighters that are there. That's all I'm going to say about it. And Aljo, I thought, said some really stupid things because he decided to get into a Twitter argument with people after posting a picture with Tate. He said dumb stuff, and a, I mean, I think rightfully people are like, dude, what the hell? But I don't want to spend too much time talking about that because it made me sad because, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Moving on to the actual fight. That's what's important. One of the main aspects for me, one of the big things I'm looking at in this fight is the size difference. Because despite the fact that it wasn't above board, he didn't do it legally, TJ did make 125. He had to use a steroid, but his body was physically capable of weighing 125 pounds and then fighting, making it to the cage. There's no way in hell Aljamain Sterling's making 125 pounds without cutting off an arm or a leg. No chance. He is huge. Aljo should be a significantly bigger fighter than Dillashaw in this fight. And you hear it from people that have fought him or that have trained with him. They say, like, how does this dude make 135? Because he, I think he walks around to, like, 160? Maybe a little bigger? He's a big, strong dude. And Dillashaw was never looked at as a small Bantamweight. He was always, like, you know, kind of the right size for Bantamweight. He never looked overpowered. He never looked smaller than guys, really. But he physically was capable of making 125. Aljo's going to be the bigger fighter. And I'm interested to see if that plays any level of a role in this fight, whether you can see a strength difference. I'm not positive you will. 
but it's going to be interesting, especially when you get into some of those grappling exchanges, where one, because of the size, two, because he's one of the best grapplers in the entire UFC, Aljo, in all likelihood, should have a marked advantage on the ground. And when you see Aljo on the ground in those grappling, like when you, you can see in the Yan fight, he is so smooth in his grappling. And he has just this sixth sense, this crazy instinct. He's like a magnet to guys' backs. If When there's just the slightest opening, he's going to find a way on your back. And then when he's on your back, he is literally a backpack. There's no getting him off. He's banged to that round. The round is over. And now you have to figure out how to not get submitted. Jan did a really good job of not getting submitted, but Aljo still beat him up there. And TJ was a college wrestler. TJ was, is a really good wrestler, but I still think he's going to be in trouble if Aljo is able to consistently take him down, and especially if he's on your back. Anybody's in trouble if Aljo's on your back. Now, the thing is that TJ Dillashaw has 86% takedown defense. He is really, really hard to take down. And I think, to be fair, I don't know how many guys have tried to take him down because... In most of the matchups TJ Dillashaw's had, he's the better wrestler. In this situation, I don't know if that's true. I actually would love to see a wrestling match between these guys. It's just a straight, folk-style wrestling match. That'd be super interesting. I don't know who'd win that one either. That'd be really fun. They should set that up. But, anyways, so I'm going to be really interested to see if Aljo's able to take TJ down. Because, I mean, TJ's sense on the ground, and especially in, in the takedown defense realm of it, really, really, really impressive. But Aljo is just so good at causing these crazy scrambles uh, that he turns into takedowns or he turns into back takes. It's hard to know how the grappling is going to go because I think when you get to the ground, Aljo's going to have an advantage. But I think getting Dillashaw to the ground is going to be an undertaking. An undertaking that I'm sure Aljo can handle and I'm sure he's trained for. But it is a lot easier said than done. And then you look at the striking and it's kind of similar. There's a, There should be a marked advantage for TJ Dillashaw on the striking. TJ Dillashaw's footwork is fantastic. He has, I mean, arguably the best footwork in the UFC, but how TJ's footwork matches up with Aljo's really unorthodox striking is going to be really interesting. And I want to see how TJ adjusts to the weird striking style of Aljo because Aljo doesn't throw a lot of punches. He throws a lot of kicks. He throws a lot of teeps front kicks to the body he kind of gets his range just by throwing kicks which is really really rare for a wrestler and then you have tj who has really really clean striking obviously we just saw aljo fight Piotr jan whose striking is incredible but tj and jan they strike their their styles are very different and Obviously, I just spent a bunch of time talking about how good Jan's footwork is, and I'm talking about how good TJ's footwork is, but their footwork is super different. And I don't know. It's, it's, I, I'm really, really excited to see how it turns out. I think Aljo could have, could, could, perhaps, have a lot more success on the feet than he did against Jan. Maybe. But I also could just as easily see TJ just making Aljo miss a lot. I I think it's also it's possible that Aljo looks really good on his feet against TJ. I think it's possible that TJ makes him look silly on the feet. And then it's going to come down to whether Aljo can get him down. And in a five-round fight, chances are you're going to end up on the ground with Aljo at some point, and you're going to be in trouble. But yeah, I've been forgetting to make picks on all these fights, haven't I? Son of a bitch. Shoot. Okay, uh, at the end... At the end of all of this, when I get done with the Islam versus Charles, I'm going to go back and give you my picks. I apologize. If, ah, oh man. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, I should move on then because then I got to get to the picks. That's stupid. Well, I apologize. If, if you were waiting for it or if it was making you mad, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll go back and I'll do it the right way after I break down Charles versus Islam, which we'll move on to in just a second. But Sterling versus Dillashaw is... I think arguably the 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 fight with the most questions because it's a legacy fight for both guys. It's a very close fight on paper, I think. And it's another one that we just don't... I mean, Sterling's been around in the Bantamweight division for a while, but he never... These guys were never matched up, never fought each other. And I'm just really interested to see how how they do match up. Who Who's going to get the better of all these exchanges? I just think it's going to be crazy. Again... Another moment that I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, no, I do know what I'm talking about, but I don't know what I think. 
I really don't. And I guess he'll get my pick after the Charles and Islam fight, because I'm dumb. Moving on. The main event of the evening, Charles Oliveira, the rightful linear lightweight champion. He never lost the belt except to the Arizona Athletic Commission. The scale situation was weird, and he missed weight. Versus Islam Makachev, the number four ranked lightweight in the UFC. Oliveira comes into this fight 33-8. and eight. He is on an 11-fight win streak. He is a plus-155 underdog. Islam Makachev, 22-1 on a 10-fight winning streak. He is the minus-180 favorite. Now, the best way that I've heard this fight broken, the best way I've heard this fight described was by Dan Hardy. His YouTube, his YouTube channel is called, it's called Dan Hardy, Full Reptile. I'm not really sure what that means, but I think it's cool. Uh, and then he, he does a series called War Room where he really breaks, he breaks down all these fights really granularly. I mean, all the way down. I love it. It's amazing. The be- but he described this fight the best way I've heard it, and I think it really encapsulates what this fight is and could be. He said, I could tell you hundreds of ways Oliveira could win. I could tell you two or three ways Makachev could win, but those two to three ways are just as likely as the hundreds of ways Oliveira's got. I think that's exactly right. Oliveira has so many weapons, so many ways he could get this done, he he's shown so much crazy stuff in his UFC career, and especially in these last 11 fights that he's won in a row. And then you have Islam, who... What's there to say about Islam Makachev? He is a beast. He obviously comes from that Dagestani wrestling smash kind of thing. I mean, he... I mean, yeah, we can just get, get into it. These guys are two of the most skilled grapplers you'll find in this entire world. I mean, like, one per, top 1% of grapplers in the world. They also happen to be two of the most well-rounded mixed martial artists in the lightweight division. Skill for skill, beyond grappling, so, so good. Obviously, we've seen... Charles has shown how dangerous he is on the feet. You know, he, he stung Gaethje bad right before he submitted him. And Gaethje talked about that. He said that he'd never felt a shot like that from Oliveira before. And then we've seen, we saw what he did to Michael Chandler uh, when he won the belt. And, you, you know, we just see Oliveira is so good in the clinch. He's brutal with the elbows and the knees. Yeah, we've seen it. He's, we've seen how good Oliveira is on the feet. And then uh, Makachev has really, really clean kickboxing technique just from his range. He stands southpaw. He throws clean, simple strikes. And simple is not a not not something that should be that should have a negative connotation to it. Simple doesn't mean they're easy easy to defend against or basic. Well, they are basic, but again, that's a not a bad thing. That's a good thing. He throws good strikes and he throws kicks with his left leg that are really clean. Throws them hard, and I think it shocks people that are fighting him. And then because of how clean his striking is, they actually have to really respect what he's doing on his feet, and then it opens up the takedowns. And then, I mean, because this fight is between just two such great grapplers, and the grappling really plays such a big role in how this fight plays out, we just have to start talking about that. One of my favorite stats about this fight, or about these two guys, I also got from Dan Hardy's video about it, was their time and position on the ground. Islam has spent 46% of time in the top position and only 4% on bottom. 46% of his entire fight time has been on top, grappling. Only 4% on the bottom. And when he's on the bottom, he's just working to get out or get back on top. Charles, however, 23% of his fight time on top and then 26% of his fight time on bottom. So they're, they're very, very different grapplers. Obviously, that's not really a shock to anybody. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens if Charles puts Islam on his back. Because, I mean, Charles obviously really, really offensively minded when he's grappling. But he has really, really good top control as well. You could see it against Dustin Poirier. When, it, when Charles was able to get on top of him, Poirier wasn't going anywhere. And the way they enter their grappling exchanges is very different as well. Oliveira, I mean, he just loves to cause chaos. To, to begin these grappling exchanges. He's more than willing to walk through the fire and I think see what happens is a little bit haphazard. I think he is supremely comfortable within chaos. 
and, he, and even comfortable within chaos within grappling exchanges, he doesn't necessarily have to be in perfect position all the time to feel okay. Uh, in, in his fight against Kevin Lee, they would, and Kevin Lee's a good grappler, really, really good grappler. They would end up in these crazy, just all tangled up positions, and Oliveira wasn't sweating it at all. When you're in those crazy positions with, with Charles Oliveira, he's not usually the one in danger because chances are he's going to see something, catch something before you do. So he's just fine walking into those crazy situations, hanging out, just comfortable in the chaos. And Makachev, on the other hand, has never really been in the chaos. <laughs> Makachev wants to take you down. He's a great double leg. Wrap your legs up drive his shoulder into your face or your neck and just make you as uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable as possible until you get desperate. He's like a, a steamroller. He's just going to slowly roll over you until you start to freak out and then he'll take advantage of it. Granted, he also has some pretty quick submissions like he had against Dan Hooker. And when he wants to get to something, he can get to it. He, It's not that he's entirely not offensive-minded. But it's it's not the same where he's made, he's not necessarily searching for something. He's gonna grab something, wait for the position to unfold a little bit, and he's just patient with it. And so I think that brings up several questions about this fight. Mainly, not mainly necessarily, but first of all, who's gonna instigate the grappling? I don't know. I think they'll probably fight on their feet for a little while. I don't know. Maybe Islam will go right for the takedown, but. He's a lot, Islam's a lot more comfortable on his feet than Habib was. Habib was definitely like, let me just take you down right now. I don't really care what you do. I'm going to take you down. Islam is a lot more comfortable on his feet. And, you know, we know Charles is, is more than comfortable getting knocked down, getting in these crazy grappling exchanges. Islam has never really been in any of these crazy grappling exchanges. Obviously, he got knocked out the one time, and he's, he was knocked down in one other fight. But let's say Charles, let's say Charles stings him. Stings him early, like he did against Gaethje. First, like, 10 seconds of that fight, Charles clipped Gaethje with a good shot, and then that's what really started the chaos, because then Gaethje just started swinging, knocked Charles down a couple times, and then Charles stung him again, and that was pretty much it, because then it was on the ground, and Charles had his back. That was it. So is Islam prepared mentally for the fire that he's going to be under with Charles? Because he's going to... In all likelihood, he's going to have to walk through some legitimate adversity. And is he going to be able to stay composed if he gets hit by some of those shots that he might not be used to getting hit with consistently? Because he's not really... Obviously, he, he trains at AKA. He trains with all those great fighters, all those great wrestlers, all those great grapplers. But it's not really the same as a guy like Charles. And you can say the same about Charles. He's training with great grapplers, great wrestlers. But are they going to be wrestlers like Islam? I don't know. I think the bigger question is, can is Islam going to freak out not freak out, but is he is he gonna unravel a little bit when Charles hits him and then maybe hits him again? You know, is Islam gonna just dive for a takedown right into a guillotine or something? Because it's not that I don't think he can or I have any reason to believe that he wouldn't be able to. We just haven't seen it. We've seen Charles get knocked down. He'll stand right back up and be, yeah, whatever. He'll just keep fighting, no issue. But we just really haven't seen that a lot from Islam. He got knocked out the one time. The other time he got knocked down. And he really just, he, he hit a knee, he got knocked down, and then he just took the guy down. Because the guy walked right into Islam's takedown. Charles won't do that. So is he going to be able to handle it? And then, if the fight goes long, if the fight goes over three rounds, is Charles going to be able to consistently win rounds against Islam? I'm also not sure about that. I mean, we've seen it in his last several fights. Michael Chandler arguably had a 10-8 against Charles in the first round of their fight. And then Dustin Poirier beat up Charles in the first round of their fight. And then, of course, Charles came back and dominantly won the second against Poirier before submitting him the third. And then Gaethje, obviously that fight was over within two minutes. Kevin Lee, I mean, against uh, Tony Ferguson, Charles won all three of those rounds dominantly. You could keep going back. Either way, yeah, let's say this fight goes to a decision. Who are you betting on? I'm probably betting on Islam. If, the, if you tell me this fight's going to a decision, my money's probably going to be on Islam. I don't know who exactly or that I don't that doesn't mean I don't think Charles can win rounds I think Charles could absolutely win rounds three rounds I mean he's that good it just if the fight goes long the fight goes over three rounds is Charles going to be able to consistently win those rounds or is it going to be Charles maybe 
doing some damage, hurting Islam, putting him in a predicament, and then it, then Islam getting a takedown with three minutes left and grinding the rest of the round out on top. So those are the big questions going into this fight, to me at least. Now I guess I have to make picks. Man, this is a great fight, Oliveira versus Markachev. I, I'm going to go back to the beginning to make these picks first. Okay. Like I said off the jump, I am picking Sean Brady over Bilal Muhammad. I do not feel good about that pick, so don't yell at me. I don't feel good about it. I, That's a pick of me. I have no idea what's going to happen in that fight, but I'm picking Brady because I've seen him out-grapple a good grappler. That's the long and short of it. Caitlin Chukagian versus Manon Furo. Death, taxes, and Chukagian by decision. I don't feel great about that one either, but I've seen Chukagian beat contenders by decision too often and too consistently to not pick that. So, death taxes, Chukagian by decision. Benil Darius versus Mateusz Gamrot. <sighs> Give me... My gut says Benil. I almost picked Gamrot. My gut says Benil. Don't feel great about that either. So I'm just giving you a bunch of picks that I don't like, but I don't like them the other way either. They're just ones that I think are hard to hard to call. But my gut says Benil. He's just a little more battle-tested. He's not that much older than Gamrot, and Gamrot has a ton of experience. But I just... Benil's a hard guy to beat over the course of a full fight, even if it's just 15 minutes. Benil's a hard... He's not going to stop coming. I don't know, man. My gut says Dariush. That's the only reasoning I have. It's just a gut feeling. Piotr Jan versus Sean O'Malley. I have to pick Jan. I just think he's a little bit more... I just think he's going to be a little bit better. Big brain take, I know. I just think he's going to be a little bit better. I think O'Malley, or I think Jan's going to win the footwork battle, and I think he's going to kick O'Malley's legs a lot. Aljamain Sterling versus TJ Dillashaw. I don't want to pick this fight either. I don't. I, I physically don't want to. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm going to be completely, completely honest. Aljamain Sterling has been publicly has been my my favorite fighter for the last several years. I'm still picking Aljo. Yeah. Aljo by submission. And then we get Charlie Olives, Charlie's Dubronx, Oliveira. I butchered that. Versus Islam Makhachev. Not going to lie, guys. My gut says Islam takes this one. But I'm going to pick Charles because I cannot pick against Charles again. I can't pick against him again and have him win. I can't take that. I've picked against him three times in a row, and he's made me look like a fool every time. I can't do it again. I'm picking Charles. He won't burn me again. That is it. Ugh. Let's go. Oh, this card's so good. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. This was the UFC 280 episode. This weekend, October 22nd, on pay-per-view, the card of the year, the card of the year. I think you have to, that has to be, it is. It's the card of the year. It's the card of the year. Oh, I'm so excited. Afternoon card also. Don't forget that. Main card starts at 1 p.m. Let's go. Main card starts at 1 p.m. Central time. Apologies. 2 p.m. Eastern. Yikes. Early prelims. 8 o'clock in the morning. Whew. Cannot wait. Oh, let's go. This has been the UFC 280 episode. I got nothing else. I'm just so excited. I've been talking for two hours. I don't know what the podcast length is going to be. Oh, man, I'm excited. I'm excited. If you're listening to this, I love you. I appreciate you so much. Follow me on Twitter. It is at Killian Yauk. The link should be in the bio of my podcast. I'll put it in the bio of this episode. Follow me on Twitter. Follow my Substack, also called Gilbo's Fight Show. Oh, okay. I gotta go, or else I'm just gonna sit here and keep saying crazy stuff. Oh, okay. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe, follow, whatever it is on the platform of your choice. Please, that'd be amazing. I love you. Have a great UFC 280 weekend. Enjoy the fights. Have a great day, a better evening, and I'll see you next week. Maybe.
You will. I'll see you next week. I don't know. I'm done. Peace.